There's a big polarization right now, a lot of anger in the countryside, which was seen in the Brexit vote, and the countryside is not placated. There are new entities springing up. Coming up on British Thought Leaders, Dom Whiteman from Country Squire magazine. Dom talks about the threats facing farmers and their traditions and the ongoing battle against bureaucracy. The countryside doesn't just make itself. So who made it beautiful? <laughs> you know, why are you coming over here and telling us that this is a, a beautiful place and that we need to protect it when that's exactly what we've been doing for generations? He talks about how environmental activists attack rural living. These activists, they're terrorists. They're nothing short of terrorists. Because you don't know who they are because they're wearing balaclavas. But we're used to it. You speak to any gamekeeper and they're used to awful propaganda coming across against them. They're used to these, we call them the antis, attacking us physically and online and our businesses and our families. I'm Lee Hall and this is British Thought Leaders. Tom Whiteman, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you for having me. You give us a brief introduction to Country Squire and how it differs from other countryside websites and magazines. Sure. So Country Squire magazine we set up in 2016, um, just after the Brexit referendum. And the idea uh, for the two founders, James, Jamie Foster and myself, Jamie's um, a countryside solicitor, and uh, he was a director of the Countryside Alliance. And we were both activists for Brexit. So we were well aware, living in the West Country, that there was a lot of resentment um, towards the EU in the countryside. And we wanted to set up a publication, which we conceived of in a pub in Devon, um, which would be a bit like a little pirate ship that could go in between the, the larger media and uh, be a bit of a menace and make sure that Brexit got across the line. And uh, Theresa May had just been elected, well, elected, brought in as prime minister. And uh, we, we decided to use the magazine to ensure that Brexit got across the line, but also that the countryside had a voice, um, a platform on which they could, we could speak to gamekeepers, let them speak directly to you know, the, the people. And um, it boomed, it just it grew massively. But our, our ethos from the very beginning was that our competitors were looking at the countryside from the town. Hmm. So, um, you know, as some sort of rural idyll. And what we decided to do from the outset was to uh, be um, representative of the countryside from the countryside. So no holes barred, tell it how it is. Do you think people in the countryside think inherently differently from people in the towns and cities? I think they do. Um, what I'd say from the beginning is that um, to talk about town and countryside, townies and rural people, um, you know, th th these aren't ide fix. We, we, we have to under understand that there are townies who, who work in the countryside. There are countrysiders who work in the town. It's a relatively small geographical country and you're never that far from the countryside. You're never that far from the town. So um, having got that out of the way, the um, simplification of town and countryside is a helpful one in terms of um, the demarcation. Uh, I'd say that, yes, uh, having lived in, um, I, I didn't leave West One for about a decade, uh, having lived in London for many years and then moved down to the countryside, having grown up in the countryside, I think that 
the town has forgotten that outside um, city and urban life, you have uh, nature, which is not peace and tranquility. Uh, nature's brutal. Um, you know, it's uh, red claw, you know. Um, and once you move into the countryside, you understand that. You appreciate that there is a need for uh, predation control. You've got to cull the badgers, otherwise there's bovine TV running rampant in cattle. You've got to take out the foxes um, to a degree, otherwise they also run rampant. Um, and you get to appreciate that there's all kinds of things that need to be done in the countryside that uh, townies just would look at and go, my God, you know, that's terrible. Um, uh, so there is an inherent difference. Um, I've just actually written a book about this very subject so, um, with, a, with a colleague of mine, John Nash. It's called Dear Townies. It'll be published in March. And it uh, summarises the differences between the town and countryside uh, by uh, creating a metaphor of the cave. So you have, on the one hand, uh, the cave, which is human civilization. So back in the day when we were you know, scared of huge animals taking us out, uh, humans would go and uh, retreat to the cave. So the women and children would be inside that cave of human civilization. And they basically stayed there in the town. So if you look at uh, everything outside, the countryside, primary industries, so mining, forestry, um, and uh, other you know, uh, occupations like farming particularly, uh, you've got the, the, the primary, secondary industries are, are outside of the cave. Inside of the cave, this, this cave of human civilization, we're going further and further inside the cave. And so people who are now born in the towns quite often have no idea where milk comes from mm. or, you know, um, can't understand it when, when there's a, a sandwich shortage, you know. Uh, and a lot of the children are just not educated in terms of, appreciating the farmers who are working their socks off to get the, the food on their tables. And that uh, split, uh, that, that demarcation is unfortunately, especially over the last decade, creating a polarization between certain people in the countryside, like the farmers who just feel underappreciated, underpaid, uh, bullied by the supermarkets, um, and the town who uh, there's another, I'm going to make another demarcation, which again is, is slightly um, a generalization, but useful for what we're discussing, which is that uh, the countryside is almost like a, a halfway house between uh, the female gaze of the cave and the male gaze of hunting. So it used to be the men would go out and hunt, the women would sort of stay at home, and obviously there, there are some women who work in primary industries. We're in 2023, so I can't make those generalizations as one could have done, you know, a thousand years ago. But uh, that's certainly important that uh, the, the countryside is this kind of utilitarian halfway house between the female gaze of the cave and, and the male gaze of hunting. And people just, they've forgotten it. Generally, there's this kind of depiction that people in the countryside are a bit behind the times, technologically averse, you know, the farmer's chugging along on his ancient tractor. Is that a realistic depiction of, of rural life in modern Britain? 
again, my, my natural answer is no, because I know a lot of these farmers, and, and they're uh, highly technical. I mean, some of the stuff that they're dealing with is really impressive, and it's moved on massively in the last 30, 40 years. I think uh, as soon as the word sustainability appeared, then science has had to take a, a greater role in farming, particularly, um, and in land management as well. So you have a lot of uh, um, impressive DNA testing. Um, you have quite a lot of data analytics. Um, and the really advanced farms, the, well, the, who basically they operate as industries, are using you know, GPS-driven equipment. Um, and, and the technology is, is way ahead of where most people in the town would think it is in the countryside. Uh, and that's not necessarily because farmers are responding to edicts from the government. That's because they just want to get ahead and run a more efficient business. And because creating a sustainable business sells their products better. Um, and actually, in the longer run, it's probably more cost effective, especially on the larger scale. But on the other hand, there are still farms, uh, particularly in poor rural areas, which haven't changed hugely in 300 years. Um, yeah, you've, you've got tractors, but quite often they're sharing tractors. You've got a, a real um, digital deficit where, I mean, I was at, at a farm last year in um, Cumbria where they just can't get internet. And it's not cost effective for the internet companies, uh, the broadband providers to, uh, you know, dig up the road. So uh, these poor guys are stuck there, you know, with their phones out trying to get a signal on a on a, a day when it's not raining which in this particular part of Cumbria is always raining so <laughs> it's just a nightmare for them um, so in some respects there are some farmers just by the nature of farming and the fact that it's uh, so separate from town and and, and, and and city where you've got all these services that they have real problems um, and particularly accessing things that people would take for granted in, in the town like welfare um, you get you see some really unpleasant cases of rural poverty uh, and uh, you know children are particularly affected. Uh, rural homelessness is something that he's he's looking at. I mean it, it's much more uh, marked than people would think. Really, I, don't, I never hear any talk about that. Occasionally, you hear from crisis or something. There's you know one article a year, but basically all the the homelessness um, money is going into the towns because. How do you target, you know, some poor old lady in a tent in a in a woodland on some farm who the farmer knows is there, and every now and again will slip them some food or something, but they're just off the radar, and it's a huge problem, um, and a growing problem. I think people, when they become homeless, have huge stigma, and therefore, um, some of them think, oh, I'll just grab a tent and go live in the countryside, and they just end up there, and uh, unfortunately, uh, they no one knows they're there. It's a real problem, yeah. We heard a lot about the devastating effect of lockdowns on urban living. I wonder if you could talk to us a bit about what effects lockdown had on, on rural living as well. Sure. Um, so in certain areas, you've got uh, internet. And when um, the first lockdown happened, um, COVID appeared, um, obviously you're dependent upon getting the information from the government and so forth. And uh, the problem was that uh, a lot of the children had no uh, ability to access online classes because they simply didn't have access to decent internet. So that was a negative. 
but overall, and, and also the access to welfare, so things like bounce back loans. So a lot of these farms who could have approached the government uh, for uh, bounce back loans just to keep their businesses going because they weren't able to sell their goods, you know, um, at the beginning. Eventually it kind of ironed itself out, but they were really restricted. Transport wasn't showing up. Uh, and so th th those were the negatives, the, the, the access to the bounce back loans and, and all that sort of stuff. But um, the positives were, as far as my conversations with rural folk, were far greater. Mm. Because for the first time, I remember talking to an old chap in my village, which was in the middle of nowhere. And he said, oh, this is, the, this is great, he said. This is the first time that the village has come together since the hunt was disbanded, you know? Because the hunt used to bring in all people from the village, um, all strata, not just the, the, you know, the toffs and whatever. It was everybody. And uh, when you live in a, you know, the 21st uh, century, which is high speed and, you know, your old people congregate at church once, once a week, but that's, you know, there's only 10 of them. Um, it's very difficult for them. They get very lonely, and suddenly everyone was looking out for everybody. So, and we, we all helped out with the lambing, with the farms, and we all helped out with the, the older people, and you know, had to go and get prescriptions and that sort of stuff. And we all clubbed together to go down to Tesco's at five in the morning, you know, and uh, queue up and make sure everyone had their milk, and uh, you know, when everything was kind of rationed. <laughs> so. In some respects, you know, you make friendships for life with the people who are only living within a mile radius, but you'd never actually met um, until lockdown happened. So in some respects, a lot of us look back very fondly on lockdown and COVID, which is obviously a lot of people died in the towns and so forth, which is horrific, but, and relatives. But the reality is that in the countryside, we were hardly affected. No one around us even got it, so, because we were so remote. Yeah. Clarkson's Farm has brought national attention to the plight of farmers. Yes. Its depiction of um, bureaucracy affecting what the farmers are trying to do and also the nimbyism, is that realistic? The bureaucracy is definitely increasing. Um, I think generally, not just in farming, in, in all sorts of other areas. Um, but uh, Clarkson's Farm is the first time really that you've had a celebrity uh, showing how hard farming is. And the red tape is extraordinary. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, in Land's End, recently the uh, Natural England created this SSSI, which is a, a site of um, scientific, special scientific interest. And that means that these farmers down there, some of whom I know, are having to tell the Natural England people, these bureaucrats who suddenly showed up out of nowhere with their clipboards, they're having to, to show them when they're moving animal feed and animals across this area. Mm. And when you speak to Natural England, you say, well, why are you turning this into this SSSI? And they say, well, because it's so beautiful. This part of you know, England is so stunningly beautiful. And we need to protect it. And you speak to the farmers and they sort of say, well, hold on a second. You know, we've been farming this land for hundreds and hundreds of years. The countryside doesn't just make itself. So who made it beautiful? <laughs> you know, why are you coming over here and telling us that this is a, 
a beautiful place and that we need to protect it when that's exactly what we've been doing for generations. And that's a story that's replicated across the country. So it seems that the state is just growing and growing and growing. And um, it's not just farming. Um, I know uh, some guy who deals with um, scrap metal, for example. And nowadays, you need to have a license for every single director within the firm. So if you're the guy who's actually going out collecting the scrap metal, you need a license. Understandable, I suppose. But then if your wife or your father or whatever is a director in the company, they also need to pay for a license. And the problem with that is, uh, in industries like farming, where you have very wealthy farmers, but you also have a lot who are on the breadline, when you have to start applying for all these licenses, they, eat, they cost money or they cost time. And bureaucracy eats massively into their margins. And so they just go, well, I'll just give that a miss. So the, the, the larger the state gets with these characters, and they tend to be quite independent characters, some of them, they'll just say, you know, I'm my own man, I'm not going to bother with the license. You're then you're creating this kind of black market uh, in you know, metal, scrap metal dealing or farming or whatever it might be. But in terms of nimbyism, uh, this, the, I see in Devon a lot of these holiday homes being built at the moment. And it's a real shame because the countryside's so beautiful. Uh, but it's understandable that there's a shortage of homes. But why build holiday homes? You know, but I, I think that nimbyism is fairly uh, ubiquitous across the country, whether it's rural or urban. So uh, to say that the countryside is particularly um, you know, guilty of nimbyism is wrong. Uh, I think people appreciate that there need to be houses built. Do you think Clarkson's Farm has gone some way to bridging the gap between you know, the rural thinking and the urban thinking that we talked about? I think it must. I, mean, I, I looked the other day, it was 4.3 million viewers, which is really impressive. Uh, I know quite a few people who watch it, so they're pro he's probably preaching to the converted to a degree. But the fact that someone of that ilk uh, who talks very simply and in an amusing way about a subject that most people are bored by, frankly, most people in towns wouldn't care about, and quite a lot of people in the countryside don't have much interest in farming. You know? It's uh, not a glamorous business. Uh, the fact that he's gone into it and shown real people in farming, it's got to have a, you know, it's got to be uh, a useful uh, um, point uh, for the for the countryside to get their their points across. And and, and Clarkson's certainly someone who is kind of on the bridge, negotiating and complaining about what you know all the red tape that's coming through. But at the same time, there are other people too. Uh, Vinnie Jones, for example, he's massively um, promoting his love of shooting. And so he, he's the footballer. That's right, the footballer and Hollywood actor, I think he's become, yeah. So he, he loves shooting. And again, you know, predation needs controlling in, in the countryside. So it's, it's something that comes naturally to people in the countryside that, you know, farmers need to shoot carrion, they need to, they need to shoot foxes, they need to shoot other creatures. Um, just to protect their cattle and um, to run their farms efficiently. I mean, I think I think probably uh, townies, countries, uh, townies would understand that because I understand there's a hundred fox assassins now in London, so they're they're learning the lessons of the crafty fox in in in, in the cities. But the 
um, the important thing uh, is that there are other characters too who are getting the message across, popular characters. So there's um, for angling, which is massively under attack at the moment, ridiculously. I mean, come on. Um, angling's massively under attack. There are a couple of comedians, uh, Bob Mortimer, yeah. Paul Whitehouse, who have an angling, but they're going. And, uh, you know, there's, there's chefs like James Martin, who, who, who makes a real um, effort to explain, you know, how uh, the food comes from the farm or it, it gets hunted. And you know he's there picking the lead shot out of the the game or whatever. And you know he's showing that um, you can you can eat these products. <laughs> you know uh, they have a use. It's not just a bunch of barber barber brigade characters going around shooting down pheasants and grouse. So it's important that these kind of characters who have um, you know uh, large appeal are getting the truth across to to um, urbanites. Mm. On this topic of well, shooting fox hunting. It's often portrayed as you've got these kind of elite toffs and they're riding roughshod over the farmer's land and the community don't support it. I mean, is that a realistic representation of these field sports place in the rural community? No. I used to think like that. I used to think when I lived in, in London, you know, Oscar Wilde, the unspeakable chasing the uneatable. But when you're actually living in rural communities, you understand, um, you know, you meet gamekeepers, gamekeepers, salt of the earth, and their livelihood depends upon shoots. So if you have large expanses of land like moorland, moorland needs to be managed. And there are a lot of private moor owners in the UK. And how are they going to bring in money to manage their moorland? You know? So they bring in people normally from outside who pay a hell of a lot of money to go shoot. And they may be toffs. But there's also local farmers who bring in some of the local guys, the publican and other characters, to go on a shoot once a year. Um, and it's not you know, trying to bag as many pheasants or grouse as possible. It's, it's giving these creatures a fair chance. So you give them, you know, you, you, you don't sort of go over the top on, on matters. And it's just a, it's, a, it's a good day out. It raises some money for that particular farm. Or in the moorland cases, they need to raise millions. So they're charging huge amounts of money for each shoot. Uh, there are all kinds of people from the village involved in these shoots, from you know, the, the gamekeepers to the land managers to the um, marketing people. So it creates a huge amount of jobs. And at the same time, you've got you know, beaters and you know, who could be someone just out of public school or they could be you know, someone who's been in the village for a thousand years. You know, so the person who's beating the that's right. shrubs to something. Exactly, to get the, right. yeah, to the person. So that's, that's shooting. Hunting is slightly different because we almost sort of run out of land a bit for hunting in the UK because you need large amounts of land to hunt. Right. And the hunting community, I thought, was, you know, the lord of the manor and, uh, you know, have a glass of port and you know, everyone in the pink, whatever. But... The reality is that the people that I've met from hunting are average, normal people. They just like a ride. They, you know, they're horsey people, uh, and there are horsey people from all, 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 all different, you know, all strata in the UK. So, um, you know, having a horse in the countryside is not as expensive as having it in the town, but these people still have to fork out a lot for their you know, maintenance of their horses but they just love riding. And nowadays, hunting's banned, so you're, you're restricted to trail 
uh, hunting. So you're following a scent rather than a fox and an artificial scent. And that is just, you get these aunties who want to ban it, trail hunting. And certain uh, charities in their pursuit of wokeness have banned trail hunting. And occasionally, you know, the hounds will get the sniff of a fox, a real fox. But generally speaking, it's just a bunch of people meeting from you know, all different parts of the village and getting together for a social occasion and going for a ride. Uh, I mean, to be, to be blunt, if you own any land in the countryside and you know that the, the hunt is coming over it, prepare you know, for your land to be destroyed because you know, they always come around when it's dry. So uh, in the summer or something, do, do you mind if we, you know, the hunt goes across your, you know, this corner of your land, you know, you go, oh, you had no problem at all. But actually when they come across, it's, you know, October where it's boggy and it takes two or three months before you can clean up the mess. But uh, you, you get to know the people and people don't see the other side of hunting either. So the, the social service that it provides. So an example is uh, a gamekeeper that I know was diagnosed with cancer and he was working on one of the moors, but he could no longer work on the moor. And so the hunt just clubbed together to pay for him uh, and his family, you know, so that he could go to hospital and um, be looked after. Uh, and, you know, everyone helped him out until he died. And that's the, the, the side that you don't see. What you see is, you know, hunting's a barbaric sport, um, which is an argument, you know, you, the reality is that a fox could be ripped up by a hound and it's not very pleasant. But then once you're in the countryside and you understand that a natural death for an animal is not some kind of uh, anthropomorphized um, Walt Disney prismed, um, you know, beautiful death, it's brutal. If you're a fox wandering around in a field and you're ill, you're going to have a horrible end, you know? So hunting in some ways, the way I see it now, having lived in the countryside a long time, is a civilization of managing predators and turning it in, as British do, we always create sports, um, turning it into uh, a fun enterprise for the village. And the other aspect is as well, in this country you have uplands, which are very difficult to... Uh, manage. Right. So if you're trying to get a fox, you, uplands are full of sheep. If you're trying to protect that flock of sheep from foxes, then you're having to flush them out with hounds because foxes are incredibly crafty. So when you're on this really high ground and you, you need to clear out the fox so that you can shoot it, um, you need to employ hounds. So you can see how hunting came to be. Uh, the idea of flushing out uh, predators with hounds is, a, is, is, is simply a reflection of the nature of uh, the geography of this country. Uh, Epoch TV, where we broadcast our show, recently brought out a documentary and interviews some farmers in the Netherlands and yes. their livelihoods are threatened because they're having to get rid of their cattle because of these nitrogen laws that have been brought in. Yes. In a, a British farmers under pressure from green policies being brought in by the government? Yes. Um, I would say this is, um, you know, sort of, uh, it's almost like on one side you have 
Athens and Thebes, and the other side you have Macedonia. <laughs> so what, what I'm saying is that uh, the environmental campaigners, certainly over the last 20 years, have had the voice of the BBC, whereas the countryside had nobody until the likes of Clarkson put his head above the parapet. So the edicts that come from government are based on polling. And so it's very easy for them to look at a poll which says that, you know, um, Mirburn is an example where it's fire management on moorland, where you're taking the fuel out of the moor um, by controlled burning uh, to prevent wildfires. And, um, you know, groups like Wild Justice have taken um, DEFRA to court on this and said, we've got to stop Muirburn because it's creating wild, you know, it's, it's, it's dangerous. It's total nonsense. It's, it's a practice, it's, it's wisdom, years and years of wisdom uh, from gamekeepers and land managers to avoid huge, great fires like we're seeing in Rhodes and Hawaii and so forth. Uh, so it's important that the um, wisdom from the countryside and the science is heard. And the problem at the moment is that, particularly in this country where you have a ratio of five to one, five urbanite to one rural, you're always a minority. But the countryside is not a protective minority. They don't have uh, a specific vote. And there are constituencies which are partly rural and partly urbanite. There are some purely rural constituencies, but quite often those MPs are paying more attention to what the party's saying than anyone else. So it's a, right now it's a real battle to get the ear of politicians. And normally the, the, the Tories are the bedfellows of the countryside. You know, these are the guaranteed votes. But over the last 13 years, the the countryside suffered under the Tories, and that's the first time that you could say that after a Tory regime. And what Labour's promising doesn't look promising either. So right now, you know, what happened in Holland, you look at it and think, oh, it can't possibly happen here. And the average age of a farmer is 59. Right. So these tend to be people who aren't going to, you know, go and do something like Just Stop Oil or Animal Rising. They're not terrorists. These guys are... Uh, people who will sit down and negotiate over a cup of tea. They're civilized um, gentlemen, and that's not helping. So I go back to my analogy of the um, Macedonia against Athens and Thebes, the city-states. You've got currently a lot of diverse groups, the Countryside Alliance, um, Basque, you've got, um, other countryside representatives from all the different aspects of the countryside. Um, NFU, other, other groups, and they are trying to be allied against this shrill voice of environmental activism. But it's very difficult because five urbanites are listening to the environmental activists and don't know much about the countryside. And it's very difficult trying to explain to people that it's cruel to be kind in the countryside, that inside the, the cave of human civilization, it's all, um, it, you know, peace and, and so forth. But outside, nature's brutal. And people don't comprehend that leap. They don't understand that uh, 
the wisdom of the countryside needs to be perpetuated. If it doesn't happen, then their food is threatened. And then that brings into the whole argument food security. I mean, Holland imports lots of food, but the UK is in a position where we also import far too much food. But food security is vital at this stage, especially after what we've seen in Ukraine, you know, the bread basket of Eastern Europe. So do we want to be self-sufficient? Or do we want to listen to uh, these environmental environmentalist activists? I won't call them townie activists, but they, the policies are thought up on townhouse desks, put it that way. And DEFRA seems to oblige them because it looks good in the polls. You know, It's a big problem. There's a big polarization right now, a lot of anger in the countryside, which was seen in the Brexit vote. And the countryside is not placated. There are new entities springing up, but as I say, they're all very gentlemanly. They're not. They're not. Uh, they're talking shots. They, they don't sort of follow the policies of uh, terrorism or, you know, uh, protest or anything like that. Um, they're simply civilized gentlemen sitting around saying, "Look, you know, do we want to be?" The question really is, do we want to be? Uh, returning to being cavemen in loincloths, like these doomed cultists want. Just stop oil, you know, um, let's get rid of all cattle. Uh, or do we want to combine the lessons we're learning from ecology and the lessons we're learning from technology and fuse them into almost a sort of techology and be positive about the future and use technology to win the arguments regards you know, uh, sustainability, net zero, and so forth, global warming. You know, we can either be positive or we can you know, just return to a state of uh, Flintstone existence. And that's, that's the argument, but we don't really hear it because it's drowned out. Uh, and unfortunately, the, the mainstream media is talking you know, in these terms about climate crisis and climate emergency and you know we've got to get off fossil fuels and net zero and all these kinds of things but that the the countryside being always pragmatic because um, the countryside doesn't have the country doesn't have time to be idealist the countryside is realist it has to be realist it has to be dealing with changing weather um, it has to be dealing with uh, commodity prices has to be dealing with all these things all the time, red tape. Um, so it used to be in the past, pre-internet, that the outliers, these, these environmental activists with very shrill voices, would just be dismissed as kind of green inkers. But since the BBC gave them uh, a lift and a voice, and since the internet uh, amplified groups, which are actually tiny, uh, so they appear large, and because they hit the headlines regularly, and everyone knows Just Stop Oil or Animal Rising. But these, guys, these groups don't have more than about 30 or 40 cadre, you know? So you look at these entities, or, or the hunt sabs, very few of them, and yet they get masses of publicity, and they've managed, I take my hat off to them, uh, to convince people that, that hunting is just an absolutely disgraceful blood sport, you know? Um, the reality lies way away from all that uh, in harsh realities. It's, um, I describe it as a Mayor's Kabir. In 1940, Churchill um, decided to take out the French Navy just off um, Oran in Algeria. 
in, in, with the fear that the Nazis would uh, take take the uh, uh, the ships and use them against the Allies. And he had to make a decision which was cruel to be kind. But you you explain to someone in the town that uh, today you went out and killed 30 moles or that you went out and uh, trapped 20 badgers and they go what sort of person are you you know and you see it I, I don't hunt I don't shoot but I fish and I've come across people even you know on the on the riverbank saying why are you doing that to that poor fish you know oh, come on it's ridiculous you know we, we what are we supposed to do with this these fish you know Absolutely ridiculous. I'm not very good at catching the fish, so it's not. I, I'm not causing much pain to many fish. But the reality is that, uh, you know, people need to get real, and they need to appreciate that the food on their plate goes through a process. And just because you can sit there in a nice restaurant in London with a steak, you know, and ignore the fact that it came through a slaughterhouse with a great bolt to its head, and uh, or, or you know that um, chickens were gassed or pigs were gassed. Yeah, all that sort of stuff needs to needs to be taught to the towns. They've just become completely and utterly uh, separated from it. And I know I used to live in London. I know how it is. You just you don't. It's, it's irrelevant. Yeah, you know? but it should be core to the education process. Yeah. Let's talk a bit more about the environmental activists. Sure. I mean, are they acting in the interests of the British countryside, which is the British environment, really? Some are. Right. So, to be fair, um, I was a, the, the rugby club, which is a great place for the farmers and everybody to meet on the, the weekend and to have a pint. And I was talking just this weekend about the very subject of the countryside and um, environmental activists. And one of them has a speedboat, and they go off Plymouth uh, every summer and fish and swim. And they said this year it was, the water was so polluted with human excrement that it's an absolute disgrace. So if you're an environmental activist who's pointing out that the, the water companies are, have gone do lally in terms of the, you know, the, these problems with you know, sewage, then everyone's behind you. you know? uh, and then there are the, want of a better word, shills. So you have these individuals who are uh, environmental activists because they're being paid by um, vested interests. So the, the eco-power type people, the windmill um, uh, manufacturers and, and, and the, the, those who want to set up wind farms, the solar panel manufacturers, the solar farms and so forth. So you have those individuals too who are paid handsomely by them. And that's something that uh, you know, is, is wrong. Um, an example would be uh, Just Stop Oil has been funded by an eco-entrepreneur uh, quite high profile. Um, he also funded a, a labor for a while. So that's another type of environmental activist. Then you have the, the messiah types who don't really have many answers, yet they seem to get a lot of media time. So these are the sort of idealists, the utopians. And uh, as someone who has a Venezuelan wife and saw the decline of Venezuela under Chavez, and how land was divided up there into little parcelitos, the big farms which are hugely successful, divided up into tiny little uh, bits of land for, you know, for each person. Mm. Uh, a sort of socialist, utopian uh, goal. 
uh, even the golf course they decided to chop up because uh, the golf course was, of course, full of bourgeoisie, you know. Uh, one hole each. <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, and then, you know, Venezuela from being self-sufficient within five years was importing chickens from Brazil was the first thing I saw. And then I think they set the price of sugar in the supermarkets, which is guaranteed socialist disaster. Um, so then the, the Chinese supermarkets stopped selling sugar because they could, weren't making a profit on it. So no one had sugar. And, you know, then people start, you know, searching out food in bins and things and starving. And eventually, I think some poor fellow ate the lion at the, at the zoo in Caracas, you know. So, it, you know, these utopians, they talk a good game. But the reality is, and they have huge social currency, and they're well-backed as well in terms of funds, um, lawyers and um, PR people, management and so forth. And they have individuals like, you know, Lord Attenborough behind who give them a sort of prestige and the BBC. So they're considered, you know, this is truth, you know. Uh, but the reality is that, you know, those kind of environmental activists are dangerous. No question. Very dangerous. Because when you translate their ideas into the countryside, you end up with crises. And you see it now. So you have... You know, the louder the voice, the more that um, corporate social responsibility wants to be attached to it, almost like greenwashing their funds and their profits. So you see companies buying large tracts of land that happened recently in Pembrokeshire, which very good farmland. And they said, nope, we're going to stop growing crops here. We're just going to plant loads and loads of trees because trees are great. Trees, you know, um, offset carbon, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a huge problem because you're getting rid of really good land, which has produced uh, crops for years and years and years, for, meat, you know, for vegans and others, everybody, and it's just gone. So that means we've got to be importing more food. Food security is a big issue. You know, people five, ten years ago said, no, no, you know, we, we can easily produce what we need and import it when, when we don't. You know, we've seen food prices go insane. We've seen the Ukraine situation. I mentioned breadbasket of Eastern Europe. So we need to think about our food security. And this corporate social responsibility um, being linked to um, these, e these eco-chuggers, we call them eco-activists, is causing real problems. And there are other aspects too. There are, there are certain policies they've come out with which are dangerous. Mm. So, um, you got some examples? Sure. I mean, the rewilding one's key to food, food security, but also it's key to uh, fire management. I'll go outside of the UK briefly, if that's okay. So in Australia, you, you had in um, 2019, but it, the fire carried on from sort of Christmas 2019 through to 2020. So this is called the Black Summer in Australia, and it cost billions and billions of Australian dollars. 34 people died. And in, you know, innumerable animals were killed, some to extinction. And it used to be that the, the Aboriginal way of dealing with land uh, was controlled fire management. We call over here uh, Muirburn, cool burning. So you, you burn off just the, the, the scrub on top of the, the land. And I've seen this in Venezuela. I've seen it in other countries too. Uh, so that when you have uh, a wildfire, which you're going to get with global warming more and more often, you have uh, breaks for the fire. 
Now, we're getting, at the moment, uh, because mostly the more uh, moorland groups are the ones who are, who are the experts in Mirburn in this country, we're getting these, these, these uh, activists saying, well, you know, Mirburn's wrong. We shouldn't be creating these fires, you know? But in Australia, the same thing happened. So you had all the green groups saying, no, 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 we must stop these fires. We must stop polluting the environment with these fires, these, these uh, cool burns. And look what happened. So if you don't deal with the fuel load uh, in these areas, or you rewild them with forests, you're setting a bonfire for the future, which will kill people, which will kill animals. And it's so short-sighted. And I often say to people, um, you know, you're going to invest, I don't know, 10 million in this land in, in uh, Pembrokeshire, wherever it might be. Why don't you put that 10 million into thousands and thousands of hectares in Brazil? Or, you know, go and buy, you can go buy for half a million pounds, you can go and buy a 16,000 hectare farm in Namibia. So why don't you go and buy something like that? You know, and do something uh, in a larger scale than this kind of token greenwashing you're attempting in the UK. And the reality is, you know, we're responsible for 1% of greenhouse gases, and it's, we're not making a dent if we're uh, converting, you know, a couple of fields in Pembrokeshire into forest. We're not making a dent at all. If you want to make a dent, then negotiate with the Chinese, negotiate with the Indians, uh, go and, you know, um, restore some of the Amazon forest, or uh, work in some of these African countries where you can buy land and um, you know, restore mining areas and so forth. But they don't think like that because it's not, it doesn't get them the virtue signal for their buck in the UK. What do you think is the end goal for these people? <laughs> I honestly don't know. I, I think that my, my honest answer is probably not very politically correct, which is that <laughs> In wartime, you never hear from environmentalists. You just, you know, you, you, you don't hear from them at all. Uh, you know, you don't hear from the animal rights brigade. And I make the distinction between animal rights and animal welfare. Animal rights is a religion. Uh, you know, where a, a rat is a, is a dog, is a sheep, is a horse, is a human. And if you see all those drowning before you, it doesn't matter which one you save. They're all equal value um, to me, which is just bonkers, you know. Animal welfare is different. We all love animals, and looking after animals is, is, is a noble thing. But uh, my, my sort of attitude is that historically we've, we've had quite regular wars, and these people tend to lose their um, popularity when the war comes around. And maybe we are headed for another war, I don't know. But if we are, then I would have thought that they, they won't take up many column inches in the papers. So... Uh, they don't have a goal, not a, a real goal. The science is subjective. Their science is subjective. Their, their peer papers are funded by groups like PETA and HSUS. It's just this um, ongoing churn of funds. And it's so easy for someone to find a, a picture of a, a dog that's suffering and stick it on Facebook and put a crowdfunder next to it and say, please send us 10 quid or something. You know, it's, it's a totally unregulated space. Uh, here I am saying that um, there's too much red tape in the countryside. I'm saying regulate that, you know, regulate the eco-chugging because it's ridiculous, it's quite ridiculous. You don't know how much is going 
on admin. You, you don't know how much these charities have in their bank accounts. It's, you have to really dig down and research. And when, when you see what's there, it's just wrong. You know? some, are, some are great. Some are fine. I'm, I'm generalizing. But I'm yet to find the end goal of these eco-zealots. I'm yet to find it. If you follow their philosophy through to the end, it's either creating an elite and getting rid of everyone else, which sounds conspiratorial, or, and not realistic, or it's just becoming cavemen again. But who wants to do that? You know? I go up and stand on the moors in North Yorkshire where I go walk the dogs uh, you know, for more than 10 minutes in a, in a loincloth and you'll be fed up, you know? <laughs> and that's, that's the, if you follow, if you perpetuate their logic, that's where you end up. So they haven't thought it through or they're just into the tin rattling at the moment and making a nice living off it. I, I really don't know. We've seen in recent times uh, some activists become a bit more brazen about breaking the law. In one of our national channels even had a, a program that said, is it time to break the law in the name of environmentalism? And people in the countryside, such as, say, gamekeepers, uh, farmers who look after animals, etc., do you think they should be concerned that these activists are kind of more willing to break the law these days? Well, oddly enough, uh, in the countryside, and I include myself in this, um, we're quite used to being terrorised. So if you're on a shoot, don't be surprised if a bunch of balaclava-clad individuals come and try and interrupt the shoot yeah. and are violent. Yeah. Or if you go hunting, you're used to hunt sabs being there and you know puncturing your tyres, shouting abuse at you or your children. Yeah. yeah. Um, our magazine was involved recently in some litigation, which I won't talk about, but uh, that litigation involved um, uh, one of the most prominent uh, um, activists. And I suddenly had huge amounts of abuse from these individuals because they run an online campaign as well as an offline campaign. Mm. So any businesses you're associated with, everyone will hear about how terrible you are as an individual. They'll smear you as le you know, left, right, and center in pretty unimaginative ways. Um, they're, they're well known for closing down businesses. They're well known for closing down um, you know, horse shows and animal shows and, and, and all this kind of stuff, certainly hunting shows. It used to be that you'd have the beagles, the hounds, and so forth would be displayed at certain shows, the Yorkshire show, for example. That stopped because of the abuse that they get, you know, people are getting from these activists. They're terrorists. They're nothing short of terrorists. Oh, I had a um, sheep's head thrown over the garden wall. Yeah. yeah, yeah, all kinds of things. And this is, this is how these guys operate. And they've taken the, it's, it's basically they've taken the IRA model. I mean, you're not far away from Huntington Life Sciences and the bombings and so forth. You, you know, there is actually a, um, a group at the security service called Lasset, which focuses purely on these individuals um, who are incredibly dangerous and they value animal life um, higher than human life. And there's, there's the tag-along characters. You don't know who they are because they're wearing balaclavas. But we're used to it. You speak to any gamekeeper, and they're used to awful propaganda coming across against them. They're used to these, we call them the antis, attacking us physically and online and our businesses and our families. 
I mean, smearing our you know thirteen-year-old daughter all over the internet and all this sort of stuff. You, you, you know, you're, we're used to it. The uh, farmers are used to the abuse. You know, we have individuals in this country. Uh, he's relatively harmless, and he's an outlier. He's kind of a, a clickbait magnet. But someone like George Monbiot, mm. who says that farmers are enemy number one. So, you're a farmer and you're slogging away. You know, animals, cattle don't take weekends, so you're working every day. And you get back into your house and you turn on the television and there's John, George Monbiot saying that farmers are public enemy number one. And you think to yourself, you know, this guy is going to go off for a cafe latte or whatever, you know, that milk was the milk that my cows produced, you know. You think, wh where do these people come from? You know, so the farmers are used to just this lack of respect and lack of gratitude for the work that they're doing. And most of them aren't wealthy. You know, they're struggling and they're being bullied by the supermarkets so that townies and rural people can eat cheaply. Yeah? So uh, it, we're used to the abuse. It's a very sad situation and we just take it. The reality is the countryside is incredibly powerful if it wanted to be. But we're just a bit too sort of supine and gentlemanly to um, act like our opponents, who are the outliers, the extremists. So if we wanted to, you know, we just jump in all our tractors and head up the M25 and close down um, one of the big food depots, London would be out of sandwiches within eight hours. Mm. But that's not how we think. You know, we, we love our country. We love, you know, we're, com we're compatriots with townies. We, you know, I used to live in the town. Farmers are uh, uh, not terrorists. We're not like that. Uh, and I don't think ever would be, you know. So it would be really helpful if the government just listened and uh, understood the angst that's out there, because there's a lot at the moment, yeah. Do you think the media gives uh, disproportionate representation to people with extreme views on these kind of rural issues? Yes, no question. Um, as I say, these people in the past would be the green inkers. Mm. Um, you know, I used to work for an MP and um, he'd have this box called Leylandi Disputes. And any of these, any crazy stuff that came through the post, you just stick it into this Leyland I dispute box, you know? It's not something that the MP should be looking at. It was to be dealt with at another level. And that's how a lot of these people who don't have answers should be treated. So you need to cut out the extremists. There are some on our side too. Uh, Country Square sometimes has quite a loud voice in these matters because we're a platform and we, we promote certain characters. Um, who say it how it is, you know? Um, but, yeah, the, unquestionably, um, the extremists right now have a very loud voice and a very impressive um, organization. And they drown out everything and they use social media very cleverly. And it's very simple when you have a five to one ratio you know, of townie to countrysider to keep winning. So as I say, it's, it's Athens and Thebes uh, against Macedonia. It's, it's, um, it's a very difficult situation at the moment, and it doesn't help that the countryside is, is um, disparate. There are disparate groups. There needs to be more unity, and there needs to be um, people reaching out to those in the middle, the sensible people talking about rewilding. Rewilding is not a bad idea in certain aspects. Um, 
you know, there's lots of areas that could be rewilded that everyone would agree with would, look, would be great, you know, and bring in tourism, ecotourism and so forth. Um, there's definitely a halfway house. The problem is to get to that point, we need to throw the extremists off the bridge. <laughs> and at this, this stage, with the BBC as it is, um, we just don't have a voice. There's a TV channel called uh, Field Sports TV, which represents the views of shooters and the shooting community and the hunting community and some, some of the anglers. But it's a tiny channel. And then we have Countryfile, which, as I said at the beginning, is, a, is, a, um, you know, is part of the, the media that looks at the countryside from the town. So there's a real shortage of countryside representation in the media right now. And the reality is that townies aren't interested. And a lot of rural people aren't interested in, in, in the farming and the shooting and the hunting and so forth. They have other interests nowadays. You know, kids are always on their iPads or whatever. So it's something that uh, is a big problem. And the only solution that I possibly came out with in you know, talking to people and listening to people is what I call CVCP, which is um, Countryside Votes for Countryside People. It's just as evil worked, so it's English votes for English laws. We now got rid of it, but at the, at the time, um, it was MPs in England voting for English uh, laws for English people. There should be a coefficient put into a constituency uh, to vote on rural laws for rural people. And then, you know, the voices of the countryside would be heard. Because right now, it's a desperate situation. I mean, there's a group called uh, Free Church of Country Sports. They're turning themselves into a religion mm -hmm. just to become a protected minority, you know, under the Human Rights Act and so forth. Uh, it's come to that. It's a very depressing situation at the moment. And you just have these loud voices who, you know, there was one of, one of the, 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 these eco-presenters walking through a woods on a program I saw the other day. And they said, um, oh, a thousand years ago, there would have been wolves everywhere. Won't it be great when the wolves return? And I sat there sort of, you know, my cup of tea thinking, well, you know, that's a very nice thought, but uh, you wouldn't be walking through those woods if there were wolves back there, you know? It's, it's a very sort of short, short you know, lot, short distance thinking. There's, they haven't thought this through, you know? Illogical. Yeah, and you get, you know, you look at the, the damage that wolves are doing throughout Europe where they've been reintroduced, and you look at these, you know, human attacks. There's a great chart on, in France, these human attacks, wolves, gracious, you know? And, you know, they say, bring back the lynx. You know, farmers have got enough problems. They don't need to be dealing with that. I mean, the government's not going to pay to protect your, your flocks of sheep from uh, lynx attacks. You know, they've got the red tape, they've got everything else, they've got the supermarkets, you know, they've got the ungrateful townies saying, you know, we should all go vegan. Uh, and then, oh, we, now you've got to protect, you know, your, your, your flock from, from uh, lynx and from uh, wolves. Absolutely insane, you know. Uh, there's just a disconnect between uh, the peaceful uh, idea of this rural idyll that the town has and the reality. So away from the idealism, the reality, which is that uh, nature is red in tooth and claw. And that's the the huge disconnect that a bridge needs to be built over, but we need to get rid of the extremists. We need to educate. We need to get rural kids talking to towny kids and explaining, you know, uh, what actually goes on, where they get their burgers from, where they get their steaks from, where they get their milk from, and um, 
and the rural kids need to learn more about the towns. Uh, and we also need to look at the media that you brought up. And we also need to um, think sort of very carefully about uh, food security and other issues which are common to all of us, uh, rather than just uh, the countryside. Yeah. So we've seen the destruction of cultures, traditions, you know, the toppling of statues, the renaming of streets, and the literal rewriting of history. I wonder if there's been an equivalent in, in rural areas, the kind of loss of you know, the, um, wisdom and the kind of magic of the countryside to some degree. I think there's a threat to the countryside in terms of revisionism uh, through the large charities which have large stakes in the countryside in the UK. So if you look at large organisations like the RSPB, uh, less, to a lesser degree, the RSPCA, but certainly the National Trust. Um, when Gordon Brown was in power, one of the last things he did was to ensure there were places from the Labour Party in various of these organisations. And there's a huge underrepresentation of real country people on the boards of those large charities, which are huge landowners. And as a consequence, uh, they've infiltrated the Natural England and other organisations which are coming out with a lot of this legislation which is, you know, uh, environment driven and causing problems. Uh, now, if the gamekeepers were to be wiped away, the land managers wiped away in one foul swoop, then we'd lose Mirburn, we'd lose the cool burning, we'd lose a lot of the tried and tested um, predation management techniques and a lot of the land management techniques. Uh, moorlands would go bust and we'd face a real calamity. Uh, but I always think that, you know, in the USSR they, they, they tried to uh, revise history, rewrite history, and yet we know exactly what happened <laughs> in, the, in the USSR during their bleakest periods. So the idea that one can attempt temporarily to rewrite history I think is short-sighted. I think that, you know, the reality is that, um, you know, someone like me who's from, you know, the Surrey villages, lived in London a long time, lived in Chicago, was effectively the most towny person you could possibly be. Um, even I know now about these countryside techniques and um, the internet will prolong that wisdom. And yes, we can make mistakes but eventually you come back to those, those methods. I mentioned the black summer in Australia, and well now they're going back to um, you know, the fire management techniques of the past. So you can go through these periods of rewriting and revising or attempting to uh, history, but at the end of the day, truth surfaces, and it's up to journalists and others to shine the light of truth and make sure that uh, whatever it costs them, shine the light of truth and make sure that these uh, pearls of wisdom perpetuate into the future. Don Marvin, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you very much indeed, Lee.